Welcome to Chi Alpha at Texas Tech University. The messages in this podcast were designed to encourage you and to challenge you in your walk with Jesus. We're so excited that you're here, and we hope that this message will help you to better fight for God's kingdom with us. Man, uh, up a little, up a little, up a little. I like my Vanna White. I like it. That's good, that's good. Thank you. Get up for Kevin Morgan. This podium weighs 2,000 pounds. That's a ton, literally. They're really strong. Doing good? Good. I need three volunteers. Cody, Chrissy, Taylor. Y'all my three volunteers. Y'all familiar with word association test? I'm going to say the the first thing that pops in your head when I say the word blank. You got to tell me the word. Familiar? Does that make sense? I'll do it last. Don't scare. It's okay. Don't filter your answer unless your answer is appropriate. Then try to filter your answer, okay? Hey, Nick, switch mics. Switch mics, bro. Switch mics. Okay, hold on. I'm back. Am I good? Okay, bet, 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 bet. Okay, we, we, we know the rules. We know the rules. <laughs> Are you ready? First thing that pops in your head when you hear the word dog. Uh, food. First thing that pops in your head when you hear the word ladder climb. Okay. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. First thing that comes in your head when you hear the word chair. Sit. Who gave the best answer? Cody. Taylor. He's really competitive. That's what makes it so good. Or Chrissy. Bet. Okay, Chrissy's the best. Okay, I got one more for you. You're all going to go at the same time. You ready? First thing that pops in your head when you hear the word king. Burger. Burger? Yes! Come on. Y'all are too holy. I shouldn't have picked y'all. Cool. So as KP said, we're talking about Jesus as the king tonight. And I do this little exercise with you because our modern day ideas of king don't really line up with what a king was back 2,000 years ago. Because I am very holy and very humble myself, I will tell you the results. When I did this test for myself, hit it, Mariah, these were what popped into my head when I thought of king. King James, that's LeBron James. You don't know who he is? Wake up. Uh, Elvis, he's the king of rock and roll. And last but not least, my flame grilled, broiled. What is it, Garrett? Flame something, Whopper. Flame broiled. There you go. Flame broiled Whopper. I know Also, they have an impossible Whopper. How do they make it? I don't know. It's impossible. Burger King. Those are what popped into my head, sadly to say, but I'm humble enough to admit that that's where my mind went when I thought about it. But there's not a lot of great examples modern day because we don't have any kings modern day that we serve under. But in ancient days, says one scholar of scripture, says kings had a lot of authority within their kingdoms. They owned the people, land, and establishments located within them. They could do what they liked with anything situated in their kingdom whenever they liked. Their authority was without question. 
So to, to submit to one as king implied a complete commitment, 100%. You lay down your rights, and the king is in control of everything. It's kind of scary, right? To our American minds, it was all freedom. It's kind of scary to us. But also being a part of a kingdom, as a citizen of the kingdom, you got food, clothing, shelter. <laughs> yeah, man, hey! I speak good. Freedom of cats, Harvard of the South. Oh, freedom! Food, clothing, shelter. <laughs> it's the mic, Ronald! Dang it! One more time, I'm sorry. Food, clothing, shelter. God, thank you. Oh, gosh. Is it hot in here or is it just me? And most importantly, protection from enemies. Back in the day, having a safe place to live was a really big deal. What was sweet is if you lived inside the confines of the kingdom, you lived in the place that the king owned. And so therefore, if somebody attacked you, they were default also attacking the kingdom, which they were also attacking the king. So the good news was, if your life was ever threatened, the king would come with all of his resources to defend you because he's defending his kingdom. Does that make sense? Is it a little easier to understand why someone might pay the steep cost to give up their rights to be part of a kingdom? It is a good thing to serve a good king. And we are all part of a small man-made kingdom here called Texas Tech. You're all here. You have agreed to abide by the laws and the rules of Texas Tech. Whatever your major, the hours they've lined out, the credits you need to earn, the grades you need to get, and if you don't do what they say, you don't graduate. Pretty simple, right? So we've got an idea of what this is about, submitting to an authority. And as KP said, to have a real relationship with Jesus, we must understand that he is not only a friend, but he is the king. And he is the king of the universe, which means his authority is without question. The Bible uses a word very similar to king, and it's the word Lord. If you're like me, you didn't grow up in the church, you didn't grow up reading the Bible, the word Lord is the very same idea as the king. It's an absolute authority there, that one who's absolutely in charge. And Jesus gives us a great, very quick definition of it in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, when he says, Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Without any context, you can understand the definition of Lord. If someone is your Lord, it means you do what they say, right? Very simple. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to call me Lord, the reality of your behavior must reflect that. That makes sense. In the same way, if you came up to me and tried to convince me that you were a cat, I would look at you and I'd say, well, you don't have four legs, you don't have fur, you don't have a tail, whiskers, or meow very often, so you're probably not a cat. You should probably stop acting like you're a cat. Does that make sense? Very simple. <laughs> so Jesus as king. The scripture we're going to look at tonight that highlights this so well is found in Luke chapter 20. If you've got a Bible with you, Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. It's about 80% of the way through your Bible. And is uh, the account of Jesus' life. And we've got it up here on the screen. We'll read it. It says, Watching for their opportunity, the religious leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he would arrest Jesus. 
Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right and are not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their trickery and said, show me a Roman coin whose image and title are stamped on it. Caesar's, they replied. Well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed at his answer and they became silent. Jesus juke. <laughs> the context of this interaction is that this is getting close to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has been living his life in the public eye for about three years, casting demons out of people, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, showing love to children, orphans, and widows, all the while fiercely proclaiming truth and the truth of the kingdom of God. In living a life like the one I just described of Jesus, this scenario seems to make no sense whatsoever. Why would he have religious men who are apparently for God after to get him arrested and ultimately killed? Begs the question, why was Jesus in this situation? And that's what we'll look into here. You see, in Jesus' teaching, there's some in the world who think Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He had phenomenal good and moral teachings, and they're right. He taught about the way we should live, how we should treat one another, how we should represent God. But he equated our behavior with our motive. Because to say one thing and to live out another thing is intrinsically wrong. Y'all with me? We have a term for that. It's called being a hypocrite. Jesus hated hypocrites. And it's something that has never been admired, even in Jesus' day. When he was teaching, when these religious leaders were around, he frequently called them hypocrites. And we read that and we're like, man, Jesus, that's kind of harsh. Like you're calling names. You read it, it almost sounds derogatory. Like that must be like a slur. But it's actually really cool. This Greek word for hypocrite literally was created by the Greeks. It's a Greek word. And it was the word that they used to describe a play actor. So they made the theater very popular. And so if you were an actor in a play, your title was a hypocrite. Does that make sense? So you were the lead hypocrite or you were a supporting hypocrite. So intrinsically, the word is not a negative one. The connotation nowadays is a negative one. But Jesus, when he was calling them that, he was just calling a spade a spade. He was saying, this is what's real. He's saying, I've seen your life. I'm in this temple all the time. I've watched your life. You're teaching this, but you're living that. You are a hypocrite. And he's not being unkind. This is simply the reality. And Jesus, the lover of truth, whose name is truth, hates lies. I think that's pretty reasonable and we can understand that. And because Jesus' teaching made these religious leaders so angry, they decide, well, we need to team up, put our power together, and defeat this guy. So try to get this picture. There's men who are powerful, influential, they don't normally get along with each other, but they've got a common goal for the most part. They're here for the good of men, but they have their own agendas and their own ideas, right? And they decide to band together because there's an enemy unlike never before in Jesus who's all-powerful. They can't defeat him. So they band together to defeat him. Y'all kind of get the picture? I kind of picture it went down like this. 
think it's pretty biblical. What do you think? Any scholars? Any biblical scholars here? <laughs> Josh, <Hall>. too bad. <laughs> so that came to my mind because this is what happens in this movie, right? And if that's a spoilers, sorry, it's been out forever. If you really wanted to see it, you'd have seen it by now. I don't want to hear anyone who's hurt by this. But the Avengers, come on, Jerry, you know. The Avengers, these men and women had power, they had influence, they had their little kingdoms that they were in charge of. But when Thanos comes along, he's more powerful than anybody. And they're like, even though we have beef, we're going to come together and we're going to take down this guy. This was intense. They were trying to defeat all powerful Thanos. Now, where this illustration completely falls apart is in this illustration, Jesus is Thanos. So if you're taking notes, please don't write Jesus is Thanos, okay? I mean, come on, Jesus wasn't purple. Like, he wasn't white. He was probably brown. He's in the Middle East. But where they did have similarities, where it pretty much as far as it goes, is that uh, like Jesus, Thanos was all-powerful at the time. And he constantly spoke of a greater kingdom that was to come. And Jesus spoke of the same things with obviously very different motives. Thanos' kingdom would come by killing half the people. Jesus' kingdom would come by laying his life down for all people. So that's where their similarities end. <laughs> Are we clear? Okay. I want a parent calling me like, you said Jesus is Thanos? No, 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 no. But here we are in this, in this, man, this short six chapter, six verse chunk of Luke 20. We've got multiple groups. They're united against the common enemy. They're here against Jesus because he threatened the tiny man-made kingdoms that they were trying to build for themselves. And as they're threatened by him, they come together and they have a plan. This is it. This is our end game. And they're like, we're going to give Jesus. Thank you, Gary. We're going to give Jesus a lose-lose situation. We're going to ask just the right question to where he can't give the right answer. So they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? If Jesus says, yes, we need to pay taxes to Caesar, then he is submitting to a pagan authority. And the Old Testament says there's only one God, you only serve one God. And his claim had been that he was God and that he is the Messiah. And if he's going to submit to a pagan authority... Well, then he has no more credibility. And so they're like, ah, problem solved. His credibility would be gone. We don't have to worry about him anymore. Or if Jesus says, no, do not pay taxes to Caesar. Well, now the, Roman, the Romans have every right to arrest him and do what they want with him, which was likely crucify the person. So it's the perfect plan. They've got Jesus right where they want him. It's a real lose-lose. And all their power coming together, they've got him. Jesus knew that the men, who questioned, the men who questioned him were spies sent by religious leaders, according to Mark's gospel. But he patiently listened and engaged with them nonetheless. He walks right through their and addresses their impossible question. And he says, show me a Roman coin. They give him in. He says, whose image and title are stamped on it? Jesus sees through their trickery as he asked for this coin, for the currency of the country proclaims the king of the country. If you caught that, the currency of the country proclaims the king of the country. Merely by possessing a coin with Caesar's head, 
declares that you are one of Caesar's subjects. These men had indicted themselves. And Jesus asking for a coin, they said, oh, we've got one. These men are claiming to represent God's kingdom are actually here for Caesar's kingdom. Their concern isn't about God's kingdom, but Caesar's. By producing this coin, they reveal their hypocrisy. These men came talking about small man-made kingdoms, but Jesus lifted the discussion and forced these men to think about the relationship between the eternal kingdom of God and the fleeting kingdoms of men. These men came representing kingdoms that they were building to support their motives and their agendas, while Jesus has a single-minded focus on the kingdom of God. It is so wonderful. This book, this library is so wonderful. And if we know it, God can speak to us all the more. And it's that much richer. When Jesus asked the question that he did, when he said, whose image is on this coin? Jesus obviously knew the scriptures, but the men he was talking to were religious leaders. It was their job to know the scriptures. They knew it backwards and forwards. When Jesus asked this question, these men's mind would have went to the scriptures. And their mind immediately would have been triggered to the origin story. We all love a good origin story. And in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of scripture, the very beginning of mankind and the creation of mankind, this word image appears three different times. And these men would have been reminded. Here it is. It says, let us make man in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. These men hearing Jesus' logic, their minds would have immediately gone back to this scripture. Jesus is making his point to them using something that they all agree to. The scriptures, the word of God. They all agree that man was made in God's image. It was an accepted truth of that time that when there was someone's image stamped on something, it indicated that they were the rightful owner. Very much like we would brand a cattle, a cow today. You're saying, this is mine, it belongs to me. If anything happens to it, it's, it's mine. It belongs here. This was an understood truth by everybody of the day. The people listening, and especially to the religious leaders, they knew that whatever image was stamped on something indicated its ownership. Does that make sense? And I think we know this because we can often tell what something's purpose is by analyzing its, its image. Our word we would use is its nature. Looking at something's nature, you can know what it's meant for. You look at an animal and you see that it has gills, you determine that this creature must be meant for the water. You see an animal that has wings, it must be made to fly. So what is man made for? What is your nature? Analyzing our nature, it seems that we were created to be like God. Not to be God but to be like God and to share in his likeness, as the scripture says. As an animal with gills and fins should swim, you and I, being made in God's image, should be kind, patient, 
and wholly unselfish, willing to lay down our lives for ones that we love. This fact that we are made in God's image is the answer to most of our questions. We are made for God and God alone. If we ever operate outside of this reality, nothing in our life will ever make sense. We must be wholly committed to Jesus. You attempting to live your life outside of your identity in Jesus would be like a fish trying to run or a dog trying to fly. They would live their life thinking they're a failure, thinking they're an idiot, thinking that they don't belong. And it's true because they're trying to operate outside of their nature. Does that make sense? And you were dreamt of by God. He had dreams and love and so many ideas in his heart for you that he created you in his image. No other living creature on this earth, only humans. Your reality will never be what it's meant to be unless you live your life in Jesus' kingdom. So can you guys picture this? We've got Jesus in a crowd in the temple and his enemies have come and they've banded together. They've assembled and they're coming to trap him. And they ask him the impossible question. He asks for the coin and he grabs it and he has it in his hand. When he asks the question, whose image and title are on this coin? And they all answer, Caesar's. There must have been a hush that fell over the crowd. The intensity, waiting to hear what's Jesus going to say now. How's he going to get out of this one? And Jesus, our friend G.K. Morgan, commenting on this, he says, holding the coin that very soon that hand was to be pierced by a nail under the authority of the man whose portrait he looked at. That Jesus, knowing that this incident would be one of the major ones that would get him arrested and ultimately crucified. And it was the man, the image that he was looking at. It was that man's authority. It was under that man's lowercase k man-made kingdom that would ultimately have him shed his blood. Then Jesus gives the reply that left the men amazed and speechless. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. In drawing their attention back to the creation story in Genesis 1, Jesus is asking them a question. And he's asking each of you the same question. Which is, whose image is on you? If this coin belongs to Caesar because it contains Caesar's image then whose image is on you? And they knew that answer. They knew it, as you all know now. These men begin to contemplate what this means, and they become quiet. They're dumbfounded. They realize that they have not given themselves to God completely as they have claimed. They had been trying to be part of God's kingdom without being totally, 100% committed the realization of their hypocrisy left them bankrupt for words. Within this story, Jesus is making one point very clear. Give to God what belongs to God. 
what determines what something is, where, where something belongs, its image, its nature. You and I, our nature, our image can only be found in Jesus, the one and only king. Because there's so many kingdoms out there. We're a part of so many little man-made kingdoms. We identify ourselves in so many ways. Your family, you might be really close with your family, and you find a major identity in that you're a, a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister, or you find a lot of faith in politics and you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, or that you're a Red Raider and not an Aggie or a Longhorn, or you grew up Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, in the Assemblies of God, whatever. All these little man-made kingdoms, we seek to find our identity. We seek to give ourselves to these things. But Jesus, throughout Scripture, only speaks of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, of righteousness, holiness, love, where there's only one king, and that's Jesus, who is in charge, and his authority is without question. And then there's a kingdom of darkness. It's a kingdom of selfishness, where only self exists. But there's good news. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says that he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. God's dear son is the king. Jesus, who we've been talking about, who we sing to, who we seek to be after, the one who forgives us, He's the dear son. And what has he done? He's transferred us from darkness into light. He's a good king. It's a good thing to serve a good king. And we talked earlier what a king is. They have absolute authority. There is no option to say no if you belong to a kingdom. If you try to live that way, if you try to live as a Christian and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you still hold things back, even if it's one thing, you hold it back from Jesus, you will get the same response as in Luke 6, 46. Jesus will look at you and say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Why do you call me King when you don't submit to what I ask? Our lives are no different. Alexander McLaren, another one of our favorite old dead guys, says it this way, that Jesus is the Lord of all or not at all. This is a hard truth for us to swallow because dying to ourselves is scary. It is. We like our comfort. We like to be in control. It's our selfishness that wants us to do this. Self, self-ish. The center of it is your Self, in God's kingdom, self does not exist. But we die to ourselves to live in him. But he, Jesus, is the king and he is all powerful. And he has all the authority. And the really good news is his name is love. <laughs> he can only choose for what's best for you. He's a good king. He's incapable of wrong decisions. He's incapable of abusing his power. He couldn't do it if he wanted to. That is good news. And to protect his kingdom that he loved and to bring new people in it, to transfer them from the darkness into the light, Jesus lived the perfect life. He was a perfect ruler. 
lived the life that we are to live, and he died the death that we deserve. He had to do this because God's kingdom is perfect. The king is perfect, and his citizens are called to be perfect. They must be washed. They must be clean. And from the beginning of time, from this Genesis 1 all the way through Scripture, human history shows us, and even today, human history shows us that we can't be that on our own. We can't be clean on our own. We can't live perfect on our own. Even to our own parameters we give ourselves, our own rules that we give ourselves, we break them. Because we're selfish, because we're in charge. And his kingdom is perfect, and you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We're not perfect. We're not worthy. But that is why Jesus did what he did, and he paid the price. The kingdom of God, the heavens to the kingdom of God would only open to perfect people. And we couldn't do it on our own. But Jesus shed his blood so that the kingdom would be wide open for anyone who would want to enter. Thank you, Jesus. It only opened by his blood, by what he did for us, that we take no credit. But when we come into this kingdom... We have to lay down our arms. We have to lay down ourself. We sang at the beginning about God that you don't give your heart in pieces. And that's absolutely right. Jesus left nothing on the cross. He died. He gave it all. He did not give us a piece of himself. So why on earth should we just give him a piece of ourself? He has sold out everything for us. It's only natural that we would give everything to him to be in his kingdom. So our response to this is going to be really simple. First off, if you're a Christian, you would identify yourself as a Christian, but when you hear that to be a part of God's kingdom, saying no is not an option to him. He is the Lord. He is the King. We must always say yes, or else we're not a part of the kingdom. Therefore, we're no longer in the covering of the kingdom. The Christianese word we say for that is salvation. We say you're saved. What it looks like to be saved is to be a citizen of the kingdom. Remember we talked about that earlier? If someone comes for you, you've got the king to back you up. But if you don't want to be in the kingdom, then there is no salvation. Does that make sense? God is not cruel in not just saving everybody. There's a choice to be made. You've got a choice to be made. And so if you're a Christian, we're going to open up these altars here in a minute so you can meet with God. If there are things in your life that you know, man, man, there's, there's maybe this one or two things that it's not, this isn't surrendered to God. I know that it's not. It's not fully surrendered to God. I want you to come up here and be brave and ask the Lord to search your heart and to be honest with him and ask him to show you. If nothing comes to mind, ask him. Say, is there something in me that I need to die to? Is there something I need to give up? And secondly, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you'd say, I've never been a part of this kingdom of God. Or maybe you have been and you know you're not now. You know you're not living 
righteously the way that you should be. But you want to be in this kingdom. You can come up to this altar space if you're nervous. You can bring a friend or you can find a small group leader, your small group leader, and ask them how you can do that. But very simply put, you read it here in the Bible, it means surrendering all of ourself. Giving up everything to God. And He is faithful to forgive us if we would confess to Him our need for Him. Does that make sense? Awesome. I'll pray for us and then the altars will be open. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your example. Thank you, God, that you are not cheap, but that you are faithful, that you ask a high price of us. You ask that we give everything to you, but it's only because you've given everything for us. You've led the way. Lord, would you give us courage to respond to you? Holy Spirit, right now in this place in every person would you convict us who need conviction respond to it and encourage us that need encouragement we love you jesus thank you for speaking to us amen all right these altars are open feel free to find a place Thank you for listening to the podcast for Texas Tech Chi Alpha. For more information, you can visit our website at ttuxa.org.